0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Hello Blink Show. We welcome to the show Mihir Shah, who is the CEO and co founder of Inspector or Inspect AR. They were recently acquired by Cadence, and Mihir is going to talk to us about the process of creating a business, making it profitable, and the wholesale process of selling the business to another organization. Let's get started. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. Well, welcome to the show me here. Thanks for joining us. Um, excited to talk to you today about Inspect AR. And I understand that you are in the process of selling that business. Um, curious to know, first, what is Inspect AR? Can you tell us a little bit yeah, about it? Inspect AR, Inspect R
1: is an augmented reality tool that really fundamentally improves the way that circuit boards and electronics are interacted with. So we use augmented reality to overlay every aspect of the design directly onto the physical board so you can interact with that board intuitively,
0: and I got a chance to play with it um, yes. when you reached out to me a couple months ago. I got a chance to play with it. It's really cool. Like it really does overlay your traces. Like you look at it through your cell phone, and it overlays the traces on what you're looking at. It's it's a really good uh, augmented reality experience. It's really slick. So yeah. how do you how do you envision designers using this to help debug stuff? So it's not even my. In my, my vision, I mean, people are using this today
1: to debug, rework, assemble, do all these different things. And the way in which they're using it predominantly is more, you know, it's it's like a pun or whatever. Like, it's augmented reality, but the tool is used to augment humans in the sense that you have all the information at your fingertips. And step one is what we've already accomplished, overlaying every aspect of the actual design. So nets, components, layers, when people need to find a particular component, see the orientation, see how things are connected instead of having to go back to the schematic or the layout and this becomes kind of additive in terms of how problematic it is when you have a technician or somebody that didn't actually design the board or may not know how to use the actual EDA tool like Eagle or KiCad or when you get more into like Cadence Allegro, Altium's Zuken, etc. it becomes more of a hassle to actually like share all these files, explain to people how to use them just when they're trying to find something and do something that when you break it down, it's just like, hey, cut this trace or add a 10k resistor at you know the edge of this circuit over here. Something that in words gets kind of lost in translation. You gotta go interpret it in form of a schematic and the layout and back to your board. A lot of context switching, a lot of room for error. And then you see this, you know, also when you have to give instructions just like that. Giving instructions, I could write it down, but then I leave you to the wolves because you gotta go figure it out on your own. Versus if I can actually use Inspect AR to do my assignments in the sense of make a drawing, add a circle, highlight a net and say, this is the net to cut and do the same on yours. You can basically ensure that everybody interacts with your hardware exactly as you intend them to.
0: So this is really good for, say, assembly techs or whole teams where you've got a bunch of people working together. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess in addition to individual engineers, but I can see this being really good for, you know, whole teams, big assembly shops and whatnot. So what inspired you to start it? Like, where did you see the need for this in the market?
1: Well, it's funny. You said assembly shops. That was our essentially biggest investor, Advanced Assembly and Royal Circuits. So the way that this came about, I, you know, I was part of our family business, Royal Circuits, Advanced Assembly, one of the largest electronics, quick turn board shops and assembly shops in the country. We had just acquired a flex factory in Los Angeles. So you know, my dad's like, all right, go down there and kind of help turn this business around because they weren't doing well. But it's a kind of interesting niche vertical to go into that we weren't touching before. Flex is great. So they used to go. I mean, a part of why this business was so cheap to acquire is because you know they spent money on shows that didn't make a lot of sense. And I can say that publicly because I'm proud of the business that it is today. But it, when we acquired it, I'm proud that we were able to acquire it because it was cheap, in the sense that this company went to this trade show in San Diego. It's like a loser trade show. There's no customers. It was not a good pick for a board shop to be there. But in any case, we're there. I'm the only one handling it. There's no customers. This young kid's up there and he starts talking to me. No one else to talk to. And he's like, Oh, I'm from Newfoundland. I almost laughed because I'm like, It was out of Montana? Where is this? I had no idea where Newfoundland, (laughs) Canada is at the time. Shows me on a map. I'm like, That is insane. I feel bad that you flew all the way across like the entire continent to get to this show. This is a disappointment. For me, and I came from LA. <laughs> I came from Newfoundland. But came all the way over here, tells me, Hey, I got some friends at this university that I also never heard of, Memorial University. Now I know to be a fantastic like sleeper institute that has some of the most brilliant startups and people coming out of it. But showed me this and they said, Hey, this guy's got an idea. And we had been kind of doing this. We had invested in other startups. Uh Mill and actually invested in Snap PDA and some other ones, my dad. And so we've been in the space any new startup, and I could name so many, but I won't on the show, that we've talked to, either invested in, worked with, helped kind of raise funds in the space that you may have been talked to or been on the show. We've just been involved at some stage. And so when this idea came, I was like, you know, forget investment. I would be a customer. Advanced Assembly should use this in their thing. This just sounds awesome. Pokemon Go had just come out two, three years ago, whatever. And like AR was like hot and everyone's using it. And finally in a consumer sense, oh, this makes a lot of sense to me. If you could just click and know what something is, that's kind of like an ideal situation. When I was in EE, I'd love to do that. So I right. said, hey, you know, I'm at the show. We'll see. Sounds like a pretty big undertaking, but they're all the way in Newfoundland. I don't know how that works. Just tell them to reach out to me and I, I'd be happy to at least have a call with them. And he did. And then they did. So these four guys in Newfoundland, Daryl, Matt, Liam, Nick, they reached out to me. We had an awesome conversation Turns out they were coming down to Y Combinator to interview. So they got into YC interview, which is awesome because Newfoundland, surprisingly, has other awesome companies. There's a YC back company, CoLab there. Um, and there's even a unicorn, Verifin, all within like a five-mile radius. It's, it's actually, oh, wow. It's unbelievable. In this island off the East Coast.
0: Yeah, it's like a, it's like a mini Bay Area in Canada.
1: Uh, not even. The population of the city is not even 300,000. It, it essentially. <laughs> the whole island oh. is not even like half a million. It's, it's very, very small. But that's what makes it so amazing. Something in the water is what they say, um, whoops, turn off my Slack notifications. No worries. We we can edit stuff Anyways, you know, we heard about the idea. They're coming down to YC. said it sounds great. You know, you guys are coming all the way down to YC. You don't really know anyone here. Why don't you come down to our factory Royal Circuits in Hollister? At least meet my dad. I had other meetings or something that day. I wasn't able to make it. But they go down there. They had a fantastic day. Saw what a real board shop looks like in the U.S., kind of how these prototypes are built where their customers are like are starting out and then going to come to inspect our. And then they liked them so much. My dad brought them over to our house that night for a Diwali party. Cause we had our whole Diwali party that night. He's like, yeah, you guys should come along, which is kind of insane, but it was awesome. And we essentially shook on the deal that night and said, you know what you guys, they didn't get YC for all the right reasons, because which we'll go into later. Like, you know, you're saying process selling. We we actually just got acquired by cadence and that. The way we went about it, the way we structured the deal, I don't think it would have made sense for a traditional VC. And that's why we didn't go after those funds. And the way we did the investment was so unique. But yeah, I mean, essentially, that's how we kind of did it. And then I came on board with the investment as CEO and co-founder because it was still so early. They didn't really have a product at the time. It was a bunch of videos. And so I said, I believe in it. You guys are the real deal. Let's do it. Let me help kind of build the business up and just kind of operate as a CEO and just kind of come in and be a part of the be a part of the whole journey and it was nothing short of spectacular this team is just awesome like these situations can go wrong so you got five partners and everything i was nervous about within
2: two months totally subsided awesome team so mihir we're gonna get more into sort of what happened with the company but i want to take a quick step back we I think have had it in the past, like a skepticism of investors, investor backed companies, kind of when that capital comes in, especially early on and how that can affect a business. But it sounds like you've had a very positive experience being involved in companies. Can you just sort of make the case for if someone's uh, an engineer, they're making something cool. Yeah. Why should they even like bother to talk to an investor if they hear these like horror stories of unicorns like dying (laughs) in the fields and the companies that never take (laughs) off and all this stuff like What's the like positive take? Because I think we might have been a little biased in the past and it sounds sure. like you you know what you're doing. So I'd love to hear it.
1: Well, fundamentally, your business has to make money. And if you don't go in with that premise, so you don't understand that this is going to make money, then don't even bother going to an investor because if it's a good idea, I mean, any smart investor is going to take as much as they can and they understand it's going to make money. If they understand more than you, that's a problem. And if you're not going to make money, then you'll just get walked out the door politely, really, whatever. But investors inherently in my ultra limited experience, are not bad people. They're not sharks. Their job is to buy into companies and in many ways, like help them get to a successful exit so they can get a return. Private equity, venture capital, same thing. Whether you buy a building, whether you buy an operating business, whether you buy a startup, a piece of it, you you have to, I mean you're you have a fiduciary duty to your fund to return money. And the only time you return money is when you have an exit or some large other distribution event. But I think if you're not sure about how your business is going to make money, and more importantly, for especially like seed stage VCs or really any VC, if you're not going to kind of get, you can't prove out the $100 million ARR, like kind of, you can't even sell a large piece of a billion dollar vision. It's going to be hard for a smaller fund, especially, but really any fund to take a bet on you. Because there's a lot of people say, oh, well, I'm going to start an awesome operating business and I'll be profitable. What about that? yeah, that's the goal. That's awesome. But I don't think that makes a lot of sense to have a VC partnership because they don't make money off of businesses that are generally you know, going to sell for a few million bucks or only doing this because they get limited bets per year. Each partner at a small $100 million fund only gets a few bets per year. And you're going to assume that most of those startups are going to fail. So if you have a $100 million fund, you got to return money to your investors and operate your business. You have to make a significant more than pretty much 2x return, right? So yeah. you, you, I've got one a comp- one or two of those ten or twenty companies has to exit at a large multiple for you to get return because he- it's a hedge against all the other ones. So it's not that oh your company has to be a hundred million dollars; it doesn't make
0: sense. But you have to think that at least a lot of these have to be big bets, so one will, can play out. So it's not right. So when you're talking about making money for a company, are you talking about ter- first turning a profit? Um, selling to another company or say like an IPO, like which of those do you yeah, yeah. seem to no, go for? No, they're all for? like kind of
1: exits in the sense of like you're, dist- you're exiting money out of the company and back to shareholders, like distributing it. Sure. Um, yeah, it just depends on the kind of business. Like we, with Inspectar, I think from the beginning, IPO is never a consideration for our business. The way we went about it, our pricing model, the market, how long it would take, that wasn't something that we ever considered or were interested in or had in any of our models. Profitable business, for sure, because the market is huge, certainly large enough for us to build a company of dozens of people and be profitable and make money for all the shareholders and all the employees, right? But that would also be a longer road because it's a niche tool really at the bleeding edge. And so we're getting a lot of users, a lot of adopters, but to actually make money takes time, like profitably, naturally with any startup. It takes years. And then an exit was the most likely case because it's something we're like this is bleeding edge. We know there's value. And we started talking to acquirers day one, largely because I already know a lot of the folks of the kind of potential buyer companies. Like, you know, you have Altium, Autodesk. We were part of Autodesk's residency, um, which is an awesome program, by the way, for any startup in I think the Bay Area, Toronto, and now they're even doing remote, basically. But it's an awesome program where like, they don't take any IP. There's no real obligation to either party. It's just a nice space to kind of be involved with other really smart people. So little plug for Autodesk. I was a big fan. It really helped us kind of grow in the early days. But um, yeah, I mean, Exit was is always the predominant way that we figured that we were all going to return money to, to shareholders as quick as possible. And that's that's what we ultimately
2: did. There's, there's one thing you mentioned that I think is, is really important. So Justin Jackson, he's the co-founder of Transistor FM, which is like a podcast hosting service. Yeah. And he's been talking a lot about... Sh- this the idea recently of like catching a wave and really speaking to like total addressable market. Yeah. Right? And so you said like the TAM for InspectR is very, very large, but you started niche. Yeah. Can you explain like how did you tell the story of the market to yeah. investors where it's like, well, no, very, a very limited number of people need this, but it's really big. Like how, how are both of those true at the same time? Yeah. How did you well, weave that together?
1: I mean, we looked at, like, we have the board industry, right? We just have a lot of interesting metrics from running a prototype board shop in the U.S. I mean, there's 3,000-plus orders in the U.S. per day, okay? And the average order size, I mean, for fab is, like, 1500 bucks, and for full turnkey is, like, 6000 bucks. You start adding those numbers up, you get to some serious large numbers, and it's ultra profitable. So there's a lot of money being spent. That's, like, the first key metric. People have money, and they are actively spending it today in this space, on things that are directly related to the product that we're building. They're getting boards and you need a board to use our tool. So they're already spending money before they even got to our tool. If this is something and they're spending money on things that are intangible and premiums like speed, quality, well, quality is tangible, but speed, well, mainly speed and service, but speed. So they're willing to spend money on speed and that kind of intangible. And that's directly in line with something that you would use inspect for. It saves you time and money effectively, but it saves you time most importantly, helps your debugging, assembly, communication, go faster without issues. So that's kind of the way that we pitch this to customers, to investors, to everybody else is that right now, you know, the, the way we always start out as engineers, the whole job, EEs, hardware engineers, the whole role and kind of success that's come out of it has been increasing bandwidth in the sense of if I had something the size of this phone, my, my iPhone, 50 years ago, 80 years ago, whatever, the most information I can get across is how much I can physically write and how much can be read on that size of device, like piece of paper effectively. But today, that same size object can transmit, I mean, like (laughs) infinitely more information and sense like videos and audio and text and pictures and all these other things at the same speed and faster. So they're doing the highest, they're building the highest bandwidth products and kind of mediums of communication, but they're using much lower bandwidth tools to do their job. That's kind of the pitch. Are you still using a lab that has seven, eight, nine different screens for their scope, for their logic analyzer, for the DMM, everything else, and for their schematic and their layout? But why not have everything in a single space? And that's the vision for InspectR. It starts today with just overlaying the design, but ultimately we want to really have it be the lens through which all interactions with electronics is done. And that sounds really lofty, but we're already making pretty good headway on that role in terms of we want to integrate leaders in the actual oscilloscope space and the, just the general test and measurement space and bring all those measurements, simulations and things like that into one lens. So it becomes a real kind of lab platform in that regard.
0: Yeah, yeah. back five years mm-hmm. ago or so when I was you know working with um, an actual team and I had uh, assembly techs. They would have, you're right, they'd have like the scope and whatever, and they, but they would have the schematic and the layout printed out on paper in front of them. Oh, yeah. So they were doing test probes. They were like marking stuff. I would um, do that and yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's like bringing some of that up to the 21st century. Exactly, just starting off with that. But like, you know, even the lab stuff, like if I look up like
1: circuit board or like, you know, just look at the location where I worked at Tesla and stuff like that, even at Tesla, I would literally take my phone and take a picture of the scope screen and then send that <laughs> in like an email. Because yep. you lose all the metadata because you can't click on it, can't interact, they can't see everything, going to ask you, wait, what's the actual time scale, what's the voltage scale? So it, this brings all the information in one place with all the context, and that's what we're working on building out at the next stage, now that we have far more resources and longevity in the business. First, let's just talk
0: about our sponsor real quick, Cyber City Circuits. Sean, who are they? Cyber City Circuits, they're a contract manufacturing and electronics distribution store out of Augusta, Georgia. It's run by David and Chris, and we've actually had them on the show. Go check out episode 20, where we talk to them about running contract manufacturing and what that looks like. And they
2: do a lot more than just contract manufacturing. They also are helping creators with the actual fulfillment of the boards that they help make, or maybe boards that are made elsewhere. So I've worked with smaller companies before, and just myself, helping grow small businesses you get to a point where you get sick of shipping things out of your house or out of the UPS store or the post office sort of down the street from you. The volumes start going up, or maybe you just have like a large order that you're needing to fulfill. So they're creating this space. If, you know, if, if people haven't heard of before, they're called third party logistics providers or three PL, and they're providing really like a high touch specialized service for people that are doing electronics work. And so if you're sick of printing out bunches of shipping labels or, you know, you're running out of room in your office where you're keeping all of your extra products, they might be an interesting solution for your business. And you can learn more about them in general by visiting cybercitycircuits.com. If you reach out to them and let them know that you heard about them through the show, you can get save up to 25% off assembly costs of manufacturing or you can just buy something through their web store, use the discount code, Hello Blink Show, and you can save 10% off your order. You can see open hardware products that you got in the store, different Arduino and Raspberry Pi things. Uh, they've got a nice little growing shop as well. So check it out, let us know what you think, and let's get back to the conversation.
0: Talk us through the process. So you knew from day one that your, your most likely exit was going to be an acquisition. Right. How does that change how you structure and build and grow the business, um, knowing that that's your end in mind versus somebody who says like, oh, I want to sit around and make a profit and be privately owned or even if they're going for IPO? Yeah. I mean, again, we wanted to be the goal. We wanted to exit, but we always assume
1: that's not going to happen because it's so unlikely to even get to that stage, especially Mm. when COVID hit and we're like, okay, this isn't, not Going to happen. I mean, we're doing this whole deal over Zoom. They just started coming back and like getting interest. How does this work? And disclaimer just for any cadence people listening, I'm not going to go into all the details of the terms or anything <laughs> that.
0: If you think something gets said that you don't want to, let me know. No, 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 we'll, it's we'll fine. slice it
1: out. Yeah, I'm, I'm, there's nothing. Everything here is public information in terms of what we've already written and put out there. But um, yeah, I think. The big thing is talking to acquirers. Like, don't I think a lot of people like you know Paul Graham has a famous article or whatever is like don't talk to corp dev. And I agree with him in many ways that corp dev is basically like the MA and and acquisitions team within a large corporation. So their whole job is to go out and find companies to partner with, acquire, merge with, whatever. Like that's their job, and then to close deals. So they have a large team help with that. You know, with actual searching, with closing, with uh, transitioning things like that, integration. So, really awesome team of like generally ex investment bankers and like really smart people. And Paul Graham's thing is like, you know, if you talk to Corp Dev early on, you run the risk of probably the most likely is you just waste your time. And then, you know, you get your idea stolen. You can waste your time in the sense of like, okay, you'll start down this partnership because, you know, that guy's not doing much. He's just kind of, at that stage, he's saying like, okay, let's do this. Sinks you with some other people, you waste time thinking that there might be something out there, but you're not focused on the business. So fundamentally, we're like, okay, assume an exit is not going to happen, even though that's what we're driving towards. We think that's the way that our shareholders and ourselves are going to make money in the next two to three years. But let's operate the business like as best we can without operating under the assumption that we're not going to exit. So the way that we kind of structured it was unique in that we stayed ultra lean, largely because we were in Newfoundland. And you find incredible employees, incredible software engineers, marketing people, everybody for, I mean, 40% of a Bay Area salary. And you don't have the additional drama of having to give out arbitrary equity where it's not necessary, right? So I think in the Bay Area, I mean, it's kind of like a required perk or whatever because if, you don't, if you're not bought in, any employee has an awesome opportunity or plethora of opportunities outside, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Google, whatever, right? I mean, they could just leave. And they could leave at any point. But Newfoundland was an awesome kind of strategic advantage for us because you have there's not a ton of other competition nearby. People love being local. I mean, our office is on the water overlooking the Atlantic Ocean, we're paying 2000 bucks USD for like up to 15 plus people. That's unreal. I mean, that's how much a hot desk at WeWork costs for one person. So when you structure a business, you look at your P&L, you're like, I'm not spending any money. And we were also, we had operated successfully at Royal Circuits Advanced Assembly. So I had a pretty good idea of how to structure these businesses in the sense of, yeah, don't go out and hire 30 salespeople. Don't go out and just arbitrarily pay people six-figure salaries because you think that's required for people to do a good job. I mean, especially in this environment, you pay people fairly and you always give them, like, you pay them where the company's at and you tell them, and you, you have to write down for yourself, like, everyone is going to get more equity and get paid more every year or as quick as we possibly can. The goal is not to get people cheap. The goal is to get people bought in at the ground level of the company and build them up with the company. And that's exactly what we did. When we exited, I mean, all the employees, whether or not they had equity, got, you know, a bonus of some sort. And, like, they kind of shared with the – bought into the success. But when we structured it, we didn't arbitrarily give up all our cash and all our equity and kind of showed all our cards right at once – we kind of operated a lean ship. We had less than 10 people when we exited and we had like six, seven full-time employees and three interns. And we still have like almost one-to-one intern to full-time ratio. Because, and then our whole thing was like, everybody's only doing mission critical work. We're we're not at that stage. We didn't raise a million, you know, 80 million bucks. So we can go hire a random guy to just focus on HubSpot integration. and One guy who's just a Salesforce consultant. Like we didn't do that. So everybody was focused on mission critical work only. We had an ultra lean roadmap and we were like, we did aggressive kind of two week hikes. That's what we called them instead of sprints because they're two weeks. So we call them hikes
0: and it was just worked out so well. Yeah, that's really cool. So t- so going back to the previous conversation, um, you mentioned that the way you took on VC funding for this was different than what oh, yeah, you yeah. normally see. Yeah. Can you talk about how, like, how that factored in knowing your strategy for the business?
1: Yes, yes, yes. So, you know, we thought that, look, maybe it, it's unpredictable in the sense that maybe this is such a, f- a new technology. We're not like doing another like, you know, cold calling startup, SaaS startup or something like that. There's so many, you can kind of see the market potential there if you do well. This one, we didn't know beyond if we do well, it's going to be huge. So we figured that we got to leave some room open for potential add-on funding, maybe a series A if we had to do it, which I don't think we would have to because Royal would have kept bankrolling us and helping us. But the way that we structured the deal was very good for the team. And really, the only upside for the investor was if they... Like if we exited. And then we did. And you know, they I'm I'm happy they put me in as an operator and kind of helped do it, but it's a team effort. And so basically the way that we structured it was not in this traditional like equity deal or a debt deal. It was more like they gave us a healthy amount of cash to operate the business, but only really what we needed. We did not ask for millions of dollars. That would have just been like a stress on the business and it's totally unnecessary money sitting there doesn't do good for anybody. Like if you're going to be operating a business to our investors, like keep the money and kind of give it to us as we need it and don't commit to a random large sum, um, even though we were pretty stringent about it. But anyways, we, we did it more in the form of like a royalty deal. No pun intended from Royal, but <laughs> yeah, in, in the sense of, you know, they took a percentage of sales. That was the deal up until a buyout. And the buyout, cash buyout is a pretty high multiple, probably a bigger multiple than most VCs were getting on businesses that exit early stage. So it's pretty like aggressive. But that's the idea that the, all, they're taking all the risk, right? The investors took all the risk in that they don't get regular distributions. They don't get really a huge upside if we sold for like a billion dollars. They don't get that upside, which we did not sell for a billion dollars. Yeah, that's kind of the match <laughs> I can say, plus or minus. Yes,
0: yeah, surprise, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something in that
1: range. But that's kind of oh. how we structured it. And I think the biggest thing is thinking that people can be reasonable, right? Initially, these guys gave us a YC safe and a term sheet and all this stuff. We're like, dude, we don't do deals like that. Like that's, We don't need to overcomplicate it. You guys want to operate a business. Let's put me here in a CEO to help kind of run the business. That's going to fundamentally secure our investment on the management side. And then from the finance side, like what do you actually need to run this business? Okay. And then like publicly, you know, said like they gave us like a little over 500K committed with the option to add on more if we needed it, if the investment's doing good. And it was like, look, at the end of the day, we want you guys to be successful, especially because I was involved. And we want to share some of the upside and get our money back with a nice kind of bonus as quick as possible. We don't want you to bloat your business. We don't want you to go like buy some crazy office and just hire unnecessary people. Like focus on the goal and the roadmap and customers and so we just structured it like that. Like there's a royalty up until a buyout. There's some other clauses. There's some other things that we did. But pretty much that's, that's the way we structured it. Very unique for deals, especially because
0: they got a, a nice multiple return. Sure. And what can you tell us about that acquisition process? Like, was it a lot of, you know, you said you were looking for investors. How did it take a long time? Was there well, a lot of back and forth? Like what you can say. I know sure, that there's probably sure. NDAs well, I mean, all around. The
1: VC, the investment process early on was largely like we were the investors, right? So that was the way that we structured sure. the deal. And also we did it this way because of Canada. If you did some sort of equity investment, you had to put a valuation on the business and you immediately had to pay taxes on it. The guys in Canada didn't have any money. And also it would just make no sense to have people immediately pay money the second you assign a value to a business. So this was kind of workaround way to not worry about the cross border, putting an equity valuation on the business and just saying, okay, why don't we just do it in cash and say, we'll get our money back when you guys get an exit event. And until then you pay us a proceed to sales. But again, we get all the upside because if we don't have sales, they don't get paid anyways. And so it it doesn't really matter. And so it, it was a really interesting and awesome deal that we came up with that I'm really happy that. Everyone agreed to when they stopped thinking about YC safe valuation, equity percentage, Class A, Class. We're like, guys, no, 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 no. You want to run your business. We're going to give you money, and we want to make money when you exit, which we think you're going to be able to do in the next three years. And that was fundamentally the thesis for investment. And then they agreed to it. And then we all came on, and
0: we succeeded that in twice the time, half the time. Right. Yeah, makes sense. And so, what about the um the actual exit the M and process? process? Yes, yeah, so that's yeah. what
1: before, like you know talking to corp dev can be risky. I'm sure. But it also is a huge guiding event if you're very strict about your time and of your business and you treat everyone obviously with humility and respect and don't go in thinking like, oh, I can't share my business, this and that. I'm like, the stuff we're doing is so advanced and also like in many ways unvetted. If they want to steal it, go ahead. It would just be so much cheaper to buy us. Right. I I can't imagine that they want to compete. And if they did, that's also just more validation for us because we're already so far along. And we know other public companies that have tried doing this four PCBs in their assembly shop. There's one that's been trying it for three years, and it's not there. And it's hard to do, and it's something that we just knew because we had a gaming background and some other interesting pieces of our team. We were able to kind of work out a unique way to kind of get it done. But, yeah, the process, I mean, starts with finding an internal champion, somebody to kind of partner with, and we did that with guys at Altium Cadence, mentor all these other companies, and spoke with folks there. Um, And we had an awesome guy on the PCB team who... Initially we were like look we want to get IPC 2581B really vetted out and cleaned up and had as the input for our, our tool for the professional users because it's kind of it works cross platform across Altium Cadence all these other groups so we found within Cadence an awesome champion who believed in our mission who believed in us and was really really awesome and and helpful and and speaking with us early early on and i think early on is when even i said like hey we can't get distracted. It's great to, to know you and a partnership and a sales thing that doesn't make sense because you're a larger company. It's just going to go slower. And we're operating at the speed of light. I, I can't get into this. I got to prove out the product first. There's such an easier way to do this, like going to market as quick as possible, getting in front of customers, talking to people, going to conferences, like doing that day one. Thank God we did because COVID hit and that all just like went to crap. But we had an internal champion and, I think like four or five, six months later. And by the way, the whole process from like us investing and really co-founding business all the way
0: until exit was like less than 18 months. It was like 12. Yeah, you guys were fast. I remember yeah. that. I remember like you talking about, you know, you. you When we was, told, was it like 20. Yeah.
1: In fact, that was like in time. Yeah, that was like early on. That was like eight months ago, nine months ago. that's when we were talking to the guys at Cadence and stuff like that. And then even I said like, you know, hold on. We don't have a, there's all these partnership things, easy to write an email about it, but it's more work to be done. So let's focus on our business because we have a duty to our investors, our shareholders, and just like us, we got to see something through with customers, not just jump into an arbitrary partnership because it's a big name. And a lot of people get stuck with this and get screwed for a number of reasons. So we didn't. And I said, let me reach out once we've done, let us do the hard work of proving out the product and getting well over a thousand users as quick as possible because I believe we can do it. And we did it. And then I reached back out to them and said, hey, you know never even bringing up exit is the first thing because that's just such a who knows if they're even doing exits right now they're doing mna they just they just bought two companies total value over 200 million dollars like when we start reach out to them. So I was like they're probably not like still going to spend like you know money but i said look we got over this many users here's where we're at as a business just kind of a nice update on us and how we've been doing we didn't go away um let's get on a call and just catch up and we did and we caught up about all sorts of stuff, partnerships, sales, how we can get in and what we can do. And, you know, I always say, like, we're always up for sale. Everything has a price. We're certainly up for sale. We'd love to talk, whatever. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, I had a corp dev guy from Cadence reach out to me and said, hey, I had a strategy. We're interested in learning more about your space, super open-ended. And we went in with just kind of open arms, say, yeah, let's have a talk, had two calls. Then they give you a, and this is common across, all kind of corporate MA, so it's not like I'm giving any like pink secret. Most people like it's a long it's like a, it's like courting. I mean literally it's a courtship. They get to know you, they feel the people out and this is all done via Zoom. So it's a little harder to present yourself, but you gotta be really animated because it just a lot can get lost in translation, certainly attitudes and, and kind of energy. But you know they, they'll give you like a pre diligence checklist and things like that. Go ahead, Harris. Oh no go ahead please. Yeah you know you generally get a pre diligence question Checklist, which is very similar to what investors will give you. It's just like, okay, like you guys, the idea seems great. It seems like you are doing well, but now, pretty much, give us your pitch deck and and why you think it makes sense. All the standard things about, you know, and you give as little or as much as you want. There is no term sheet at this stage. Nothing's been signed. It's all been we're interested. So you decide how much you want to reveal, and also how much you want to how much time you want to take on this, and how much you want your team and who on your team needs to be distracted in this process. Because if you start undertaking it it is a huge undertaking. It is not like you can do it casually. I mean, this is like your job. Once you get in, once like you're on the road, you can't slow down. It's all about momentum, keeping people interested and doing like the best show you can possibly do. Because, you know, there's always two types of companies, companies I think that are sold and companies that are bought. And, you know, we are so early, this is not a failing company that was you know, sold like in a fire sale by any means. It was like an exciting company. They hopped up first and we had other kind of people in the mix and, and we went this route. So it was also an interesting process with other groups, but this was not an Instagram Zuck situation where he's just like, everyone's doing it. And he shows up on the weekend, gives you a billion dollar check. And it's like, I own you. This was not Zuck <laughs> Instagram situation, Oculus situation at all. This was a company that we actively, once we started down the process and saw interest from a few different groups, we're actively selling and went down the process and really put a large amount of effort in. Not to say others don't, but we were on on the offense for for a lot of it until we got the term sheet.
2: Then really it's kind of the other way. And so you see, you have an engineering background. My impression yeah. is that you were doing a lot of these things for the first time. Is that is that true?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. So I I study electrical engineering, have a master's in EE, I worked at Tesla, at Taser. And then I'd always want to do – I was always wanted to kind of start a business. My dad is a successful entrepreneur, runs board shops. We have several, now three different shops and kind of equity investors and a few others. And we've done angel investing in a few startups, like ones that may have been on the show or things like that. So we kind of have our hands in every part of the industry. And I'd seen it been done. It just inspired me. So when I was at Taser, halfway through being an engineer, I remember like I was part of their LDP, Leadership Development Program. The president of Taser, it's a public company, Axon now. Um reach out to me and say, Hey, like you want to be my chief staff. So I said yes. And that was an amazing experience because I got to s- like sit in the boardroom of a public company, go to these meetings. I mean, I'd fly to Boston, go to investor roadshows with him. Things I had no finance background. But then you start to realize like it's all attainable. Finance is not necessarily hard. I don't I could not do a hardcore private equity model. I would fail a test for like working at KKR or something, but like When you break it down to fundamentals, and if you're able to do that and kind of get past the noise and not get too deep into the numbers, it's all sharing a story. You're just pitching the valuation. You're pitching the story. Why should you be looked at as a SaaS business and not a hardware taser company? That was kind of the big taser struggle. The people still saw them as taser, but hold on. You got this billion-dollar evidence.com body cam software management company that's way bigger. Why aren't you evaluating us this way to all the investment bankers? And then sharing that story, doing that, we're just fundamentally worth a lot more. And the same thing with our business, like it's not just a lab tool. You had to look at it as a platform. That's what makes it defensible. When you start adding in all the partners, the sponsored projects, all the different parts of the lab, that's the value. And so, yeah, I didn't have a background in it. I'd see my dad operate businesses. The chief of staff role was awesome because I got to see how these guys operate a business. And at the end of the day, it was fueled by all the same th- same things that I had an intuition on. And always felt kind of insecure about, but it really comes down to like passion in the business and a fundamental understanding of your business and every aspect of it, the employees, the teams, the roles, how you're spending cash. And that's what I kind of learned there too. What makes an effective operator is capital allocation. Like, do you know how to spend money wisely and where your money is going and where it's sitting and how it's returning for the business shareholders and your growth? And also the ability to hire effectively and make those key decisions and just execute. And those things I learned, I got a pretty good sense of what it takes at that level at the public company, guys that were growing at crazy rate and just the stock had tripled since I was there, like what that looks like. Okay, that's not where I'm at though. And then I would seen my dad operate and then I was like, I got to start something. So I said, oh, okay, I don't have, yeah, I'm technical, but I'm not, I don't have time to like go make a full other product. I don't have any other ideas. Let me start a shoe company. I had like this. BS kind of Indian shoe company. I wore these shoes I got in India. I was like, I really like these. So I called up the distributor in India. I emailed them and said, Hey guys, I'd love to kind of build my own brand and do it. Cause everyone I know likes these shoes. And I just want to try selling them in the U S and try doing this for myself while I was working at taser. And by the way, taser, I love that a company that's public and that large, I mean, still talk to the president, Luke Larson, and he's still like, dude, go off and do it. I love that. Go, go make it happen. Try it. And so I go try it. And I had my roommate from grad school be my partner And all the things you you don't want to do in business, I did. And that's why we ultimately failed. But it was such a good learning experience in that like, yeah, there's so many good ideas, but you got to pick the right one. Retail businesses, in my opinion, for me, do not make any sense where it's like transaction based retail type. You're selling a physical product, you have inventory. And I guess the same could apply to hardware, but without like an IoT connection or whatever, just plain hardware, is just a shoe, it's hardware effectively difficult business to run. I don't recommend it. And it's hard to scale your, your costs kind of grow with your revenue at a, at a pretty linear rate. So it's not kind of the way to grow. Certainly when you don't have a lot of funding and you're trying to operate with a small team, effectively two people, it is a lot to manage. And it was something that I quickly learned. It wasn't for me because I quickly fell out of love with it because I was more in love with the idea of being an entrepreneur than running a successful business. And that showed very clearly When it started to get hard, and I was like, you know, going to Taser all day, working these twelve-hour days, and coming home and like slinging shoes, and I was like, I don't want to be doing this. So I said, okay, let me try another business that maybe has more recurring revenue that I could still do locally and operate. And I wanted to be an operator, hands-on. I didn't want to do a business that I write some code and have it run. I wanted to feel what it's like to be a real operator with employees, just because it's hard. Not to say the other one isn't at all, but to me, this is something I didn't have experience with. So I said, let me start a commercial cleaning business. Psychotic movement, but only because. I had hired two cleaners. I remember my place in Arizona and both of them, I just would talk to them, but you know, we're paying you $120, like a pretty big one bedroom, like lofty, whatever apartment. Where's that money going in like a normal kind of conversational way. And they're like, Oh, you know, actually, cause I remember when I called the company, it was like this super well-spoken dude who's, Oh yeah, man. Like I got somebody coming over there after. And I talked to the cleaner. She's like, yeah, you know, you know, I'll get like 40 bucks out of this. I'm like, where's the 60 bucks going to? And then I found out it's just like some young dude who's like 22 that kind of in a PE type way just has a few of these, has like 10 cleaners and would kind of like work with other groups and kind of syndicate and then has a bunch of these offices. I said, okay, let me do residential cleaning because I hire a cleaner and I feel like I know what I need. So I went to Walmart, bought a bunch of cleaning supplies, went to the back of Taser at the assembly shop and like found like three ladies. So I'm like, hey, you guys need like second or third jobs? They're like, yeah. I was like, cool. You guys work for me now. Let's try doing this cleaning thing and we tried this and it just like didn't residential cleaning was so hard there's a huge risk factor you can't just send people into random people's homes that I, again i had to learn the hard way like i'm responsible for these people i run the business i pay them i'm responsible for their safety their longevity their happiness these are all real things and so like i was trying to book cleanings i had this website just a ton of work that i didn't need to do and i quickly learned that i got a call one night from this lady that owned a salon and she's like hey i saw you on Yelp uh i everyone else is booked up do you have any availability i was like yeah she's like, okay my place is this big i was like all right 300 bucks she's like yeah that sounds great i was like whoa i just booked like three times my average like residential for the same amount of space and it's a salon mean they get dirty regularly so they need the same cleaning every week and i called her i was like hey, you know do you need this every two weeks every week she's like, yeah every two weeks would be great i was like oh okay great i booked my first recurring client and then i just went to all the salons in scottsdale and said hey do you guys need a cleaner and i walked in you know you try to be charismatic You're like just give me a shot and pretty soon I had like 8 to 10 clients and making a few thousand dollars a month with well over 2,000 bucks a month in profit that's just for me and it's an easy business to set up low cost but ultimately it's hard to scale it's not something I was passionate about and I'm like okay fundamentally now I learned okay retail businesses aren't for me service businesses certainly are and I know that money can be made and people are spending money but I didn't want to be in the cleaning business. So I was like, yeah, I, I like tech. We are, we have a successful business in this electronics industry. What else can I do there? So then I joined my dad, worked with him for two years. That's how we kind of brought in, like you know, Royal does like a lot of the boards, Rosh Park, and all these other groups. Like that's how we kind of got involved in that whole space. And we grew the business for almost a hundred million dollars now. And just watching my dad operate, like not from home, but like at the shop, was also really eye opening. And seeing things I liked things I didn't like, but. Obviously, he knows what he's doing to some extent because he took a business from zero to $100 million, ultra, ultra profit. So he's doing something right. A lot of those lessons in management by walking around, listening, shutting up, being calm when people are angry is like a literal superpower. Just like being calm and looking at the bigger picture and being a champion of the business, not letting your ego or your personal ambition get in the way of the business's success. And seeing all those little goals that I don't think you would get unless you're sitting at the table, those all helped me, I think, ultimately be – I can't build it up to say I'm some ultra-successful operator. But whatever my role was, I think it helped in some way because we got to to an exit. But, I mean, I I still largely attribute it to the development team and and the guys in Canada. I don't take any tangible form of credit for that beyond just being there kind of overseeing the investment. But, but yeah, those are all things. And I think – That's what people also don't see is like all the little things you try and you fail and you learn from it's cliche, but like these are tangible examples of like a shoe company and a cleaning company, things like why is an electrical engineer doing that stuff? But you learn from it and you learn what you don't like. You learn where you fail. You learn that shit's hard. Business is not easy and it's ruthless and people don't want to give you their money. This is hard earned money. People aren't going to give you money for anything just because you have a great idea. The build and they will come is a total fallacy. It doesn't work. I don't know anyone that's really made it work. And so like you got to be have a lot of conviction about your business and it's grueling. It takes years and that's all the training grounds to make it happen of things that you just got to go for. You can't sit and think, ah, that sounds like a good idea on paper. Let me do the model. Yeah, if I did this, I'd make a few million bucks Like, go try it. It is really hard. Cleaning businesses in theory can make millions. My business did not.
0: <laughs> That's a pretty wild experience. Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks for sharing that story. It sounds like you learned a ton. Even like, yeah. even if it's like doesn't working, you are learning a ton along the way. Management so, what works. How immature you are. Hmm. Oh, the other biggest thing. This is just because this I feel like
1: this show is relevant. People that are starting companies are listening. The two biggest. I mean, having good investors is key for sure, but make sure you do not cheap out or you do not w- delay getting a good attorney or getting and getting a good accountant. Those are two separate groups that you need to have when you form the business. So it's formed legally correctly. You need to have a a good lawyer to draft up your employment contracts, your partnership contracts, which by the way, you need to have day one, all your term sheets, your negotiations, not in a ruthless way, but the attorney's job is to protect you and to protect the business. You have to have a good attorney throughout the process that you can rely on and you are going to spend money on and factor that in. And then when you get to the deal, it is oftentimes a different attorney, but you need to find a good M&A attorney or a, a group. And we did – we used Labarge Weinstein, another plug, just because I'm such a fan of their work. We had Colin Ren, one of the partners, and Alicia Grant, and they just kicked ass. Like they were just – I mean we were on calls the le- like midnight East Coast time with them. We were – I mean signing definitive agreement term sheet at like 1 in the morning. They'd be on a call with us on Saturday pushing this through. And it was just like they're they're riding for us and they were so – like, you know, we were scared. Like, man, this is like Cadence; it's a big company. Like, we should just give them, you know, we should sign the thing. They're like, no, like this doesn't make sense. You're get, you're not getting a good deal. It's a has to be a, a good deal for all parties, and we're your attorneys, so we're obligated to like work hard for you and go to battle for you. So it's up to us sometimes to like say, no, this is okay. We're going to take this one, not. But anyways, having a good attorney accountant key cannot undermine that. Do not cheap out on that. Don't wait. Get that day one and build a real relationship with them.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, anything else before we wrap up here? Um, any other advice you you might have for people who are looking to build something in in the hopes of you know maybe yeah. being acquired? Just do it, man.
1: Honestly, just just don't weigh, Don't try to do every model. Like, have a fundamental understanding of your business, how much money it can make, and then believe it. Like, if you are going to say the TAM is five billion dollars, then believe it and say, yeah, we this is the TAM that we're going to go after. Here's how long it might take us, but this is the market potential. We're going to hold ourselves to this kind of value and the business is going to be structured to hit that. And so you just got to do it. You can't wait. I would say a lot of people, oh get the product perfect. Just get it out there. MVP. Don't be scared of putting your idea out there. Like, dude, execution is everything. Like you can. There's also a ton of space for a lot of people to operate. There's tons of board shops and most of them. Well, the ones that are killing it, like the the top five, 10 that we play in they're all making money. And there's tons of room out there for, for more than one competitor. But generally, if you got a better team, you're passionate, you have like the ability to withstand time, you'll win.
2: Yeah, that's great. Uh, Harris, anything else? You know, this is phenomenal. I mean, I feel like people, should, you should listen to this episode twice. There's so many things that me here just like touched on that could be whole episode. So this has been awesome. I'm really, really excited to hear. here. And congratulations to you and the team. I mean, incredible success. You know, it's a really cool product. I can just totally see Inspectar being part of the future. You know, it's just one of these things where like, this makes sense. It's not just, you know, some company that gets bought and then extinguished because they just bought the... No, you
1: know,
2: yeah. like I love it. I think it's such a, such a great story. And we were talking before we started about how small the hardware business is. And I suspect that uh, you're not going anywhere. So if someone has an idea and they want to pitch, you should maybe think about hitting up here. Maybe he'll uh, be yes. an angel investor no, in your project.
1: We, I, we, we actively angel invest. I'm looking for decks. I love talking to people in the hardware space. And last thing I'll say is anyone starting a hardware business, especially if it's a service, if it's a design service, or you know, one of the fifty Git for Hardware, whatever, yeah, you're helping people in the design stage. Walk them to manufacturing. Come to us for manufacturing. We'll work out a deal with your website so you can offer boards like that. We did that with like guys at Patcher and everybody else. But that's how you're going to collect revenue. Inspector sold a nice contract to like you know a big company that makes toothbrushes early on, and then we introduced them to Royal. They spent 10x the amount on boards in a month than they did on a contract with Inspector. And we get to collect that revenue up front because it goes through us. So think services, think helping your customer throughout the process. But think of me when you're looking for boards, when you're looking (laughs) for Inspector, we have a free version. And when you're looking for angel investment, or even a little bit beyond that, if you want to just talk about kind of how to raise money, if your business is viable, I don't have all the answers, but I love to talk about the stuff. I know the space and kind of what it's about reasonably well because we've done well in a few aspects so happy to chat totally unbiased i'm not going to steal your idea i'll probably invest or work with you yeah that's great where can people find you yeah so i have uh i made a twitter but i have like 10 followers and one tweet so probably not the best honestly just email me here mihir at com is the easiest way i'm super active on email um but if you find me on any social media just like dm me dms are open it's all good um, and then Inspector, like I was going to say, we have a free version. Eagle KeyCAD projects are always free. And then uh, try out the professional version; comes with the trial. Um, it could be a huge, huge time saver for your for your lab and for your team, especially now that people are remote. Walking CMs and walking other groups through your hardware development is key, and that's where Inspector really shines. And that's why we required.
0: Yeah, this has been so helpful. I've learned a ton here. Uh, cool. Thank you so much, me here, and uh, congratulations on the successful exit. That's great. Thanks for listening. If you like
2: what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC by 4.0 license by Skalriza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC by 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash Amin Maxwell slash Routine.